This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. A little bit later in the hour, talking about the wildfires that are burning in the West. How much of this is due to humans? How will the scorched areas rebound? If one of those, uh, are you affected? Do you live there? Do you have a question? Give us a call at 844-724-8255. That's 844-SCI-TALK. But first, just before the powerful quake struck Mexico this week, alarm sirens rang out. That's from a video posted to the Alerta Chiapas Twitter account. The seismic alert blared before shaking began, and it warned citizens to take cover, earthquake on the way. And while it's hard to say whether any lives were saved in this quake by that advance notice, the alert system did work as intended. Here to tell us more is Amy Nordrum. She's associate editor at IEEE Spectrum here in New York. Welcome back, Amy. Hi, Ira. So uh, your first story today about earthquake early warning systems, which sounded in Mexico, didn't give a whole lot of warning, right? But it did work. Yeah, this is a success story out of Mexico City this week. Uh, it was a it was a system that the country of Mexico has installed along the western border, and they've got a, more than 100 seismic sensors there that are uh, in place to detect the first seismic waves that come from an earthquake. They're actually called primary or P waves, and they're so weak that we can't actually feel that first set. So if you're able to pick those up with these seismic sensors as they are down there in Mexico, uh, you can send ahead a radio warning and alert people that the later damaging secondary or S waves are on the way. And that's what we saw play out in Mexico City. You're right that it doesn't typically give too much warning. There are systems like this in place in Japan and elsewhere around the world. But, you know, sometimes 30 seconds or 60 seconds uh, can really help you get to a safe place, take cover, pull off to the side of the road, and it can make a difference. How many are there in this country? How many sensors? <laughs> How many sensors like this? I mean, does, for example, does California, the epicenter of the tech industry and where we have, you know, all those quakes happening? Does California yeah, have them? They're working on it. They they're don't working. have it in place yet. So California is a bit behind Japan and Mexico in this regard, and also Washington State as well, a big seismic area there around the Seattle uh, area. So they are working on a system. USGS is working on one called ShakeAlert. They're hoping to install about 1,600 center, uh, sensors, seismic centers that would cover Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Seattle. But to date, they've only installed about 40% of those. So they're mm. still working on them. Uh, they've been fighting for funding for this project. And Did you say funding? Yes. Yeah, all those, all those <laughs> science organizations for the government, they're not getting a lot more money. Are they? That's right. Yeah. They've This project has um, needed about $16 million a year to get up and running and uh, to build out the sensor network of their dreams. And they're only getting about $10 million in funding this right now. And, um, yeah, President Trump's proposed budget would have wiped that out. But it's since been uh, reinstated uh, when some senators have spoken up and fought for it. Hmm. Yeah, pushback does work sometimes. Uh, your next story takes us back 68 million years ago to Madagascar. Tell us about that. Yes, they're in Madagascar. Uh, back in those days, there was a giant frog named the Biesel Bufo that was lumbering around and had a very strong bite. And the bite force of that frog was estimated for the first time this week in a study that measured the bite force of South American horned frogs, which are its closest known modern relative. Where do you get the name? Well, say that name again. Biazel Bufo. It's a very unique name. It actually means devil toad. This frog mm. was 10 pounds, about the size of a beach ball, and it comes from the uh, Latin and Greek words for devil and toad. 
Uh, Mark Twain would have loved that frog. All the frog jumping he had, so, so how? So it really had a big crunch. It really had. It had jaws such, of steel. That's right. It had very strong jaws, and the the uh, force of its bite about uh, two thousand two hundred newtons. That's about what a wolf or a tiger wow. could assert on its prey. And the researchers who worked on the study say it's it's large enough that this giant frog, the Biazal bufo, could have theoretically eaten small dinosaurs that were roaming around around that time. And we don't know for sure if it was actually uh, chomping down on tiny dinosaurs, but it's it's possible with the bite force that they've estimated. Mm, glad they're not still out there. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> At least my back. Right. <laughs> and now let's go to the FDA responsible for approving drugs and devices is now reviewing apps. That's, That's right. right. Tell us about this. Yes. So the FDA recently approved a pers- uh, software uh, program, a, an app on it from a smartphone called Reset. It's the first use of software being prescribed to actually treat disease. This is put out by a company called Pair Therapeutics, and it's designed to assist in the treatment of substance use disorder for things like alcohol abuse, uh, marijuana, cocaine. The idea is that this app would be prescribed by a physician to a patient along with a 12-week treatment program, and that patient would go in, unlock the app with their prescription, hopefully you know, get their insurer to pay for it, and then follow along uh, with, in the app with their treatment program. And in clinical trials, this has shown to help improve adherence to the treatment plan by about 20%. Well, you know, this is the future, isn't it? Using apps and, and, and keeping track yourself. I think so. I think there's a lot of demand among patients for like easier ways to manage um, their own treatments and to have that involvement. It's tricky to make it a prescription because it also limits the amount of people that might have access to it. Because now you need to go and get a prescription for this app rather than just putting it out, you know, in the mm. Apple iTunes store. But on the other side, it also you know shows that there's clinical yeah. evidence backing it up. Pricing? How much? We don't know yet because that's going to depend on the insurers. Uh, the company spent about twenty million dollars developing it. So, you know, it it's, remains to be seen what they're going to be charging patients. I should have got a couple of high school kids. They could have done a lot, <laughs> a lot cheaper. Uh, and your last story comes at, at an appro- uh, appropriate time of the year. We, we see squirrels running around storing the nuts, and they, they actually have a special mental trick as they do this, you say. Yes. You know, I always see the squirrels, and I'm like, what are they thinking? They always seem so busy. They're scurrying around. They have a lot on their minds. There were some researchers at UC Berkeley that were wondering this as well, and they found that when squirrels are storing nuts, and they do this uh, three to 10,000 nuts a year, actually, they, they actually have a very specific strategy or somewhat of a specific strategy that they follow where they're prioritizing where they're placing the nuts, depending on what kind of nut they're carrying. Sometimes the weight of the nut, how good of a nut it is, can play uh, into this. And the strategy that they're using is called chunking. So it's a way to, to take a lot of information, like the locations of all those individual nuts, and break it down into something more manageable. I wonder if anybody's you know, studied whether they, how they know where to go back to look for the nuts. You know, I was asking about this, and there's a lot of theft among squirrels, so there's like a 25% theft rate, and then about 5 to 10% of nuts they just totally forget about. So anything they can do to improve the number of nuts that they remember is super useful to them. Well, that helps the trees grow. And the trees, <laughs> if they forget the nuts, the trees are going to... Exactly. That's a bonus for the trees and a, a bad thing for the squirrels. Nut theft, only here on Science Friday. You hear a squirrel nut theft. Thank you, Amy. Thanks, Ira. Amy Nordrum, Associate Editor at the IEEE Spectrum in New York. Now it's time to play Good Thing, Bad Thing. Because every story has a flip side. Now, you probably know someone who has a home diabetes test. Maybe you do it yourself. 
you prick your finger, you put a drop of blood on a test strip, and you can get a readout of your blood sugar level almost immediately. Now imagine if it was that simple to test for a deadly tropical disease. Well, in the case of malaria, it turns out it is. It's called the Malaria Rapid Diagnostic Test, RDT. And it's particularly useful in remote areas where traditional lab testing is difficult. The test can confirm a positive reading, but the test comes with a few negative consequences. The results were published last month in the American Journal of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. And Dr. Heidi Hopkins is an author on that study. She's an MD and an associate professor in malaria and diagnostics at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Diseases. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you, Ira. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Let's talk about the good thing first. Can you put in context how the introduction of this test has changed outcomes when it comes to treating malaria? That's right. Well, as you were just saying, before we had diagnostic tests, a lot of these cases of malaria, which is a deadly disease, were being treated completely empirically. That means if you or your child has a fever, a healthcare worker says, you have fever, you have malaria, I'm not sure, we're going to treat you just to be on the safe side. And now we have the, the possibility, even in very remote areas, to diagnose more or less accurately those same fever cases. So the WHO estimates that now about half of children who are brought for care in sub-Saharan Africa get a diagnosis, as opposed to substantially less than that even just a few years ago. That's terrific. I I imagine they're very happy about that. You would think so. It it does tend to get a positive reception. Now, the test is very useful, as you say, but you conducted a study that showed that there were a few unforeseen consequences, and, and that's the bad thing. Well, yeah, we don't, I'm not sure we want to say it bad, but there were definitely some big positive consequences to the introduction of RDTs. As we said, now people with a potentially fatal disease can be diagnosed accurately, and in fact, this has improved the targeting of the appropriate antimalarial treatment, the artemisinin and combination therapies that are first-line drugs, mm-hmm. certainly across most of Africa, across most of the world. Now we can target them appropriately, and so the overuse of those has been appropriately targeted to the patients who do actually have malaria. Mm-hmm. Plus, in some cases, even when there was a positive outcome, the, the anti-malarials were, were not prescribed, correct? That's right. So that was maybe the first of the unexpected and undesirable consequences that we noticed. There was a proportion of patients who, even though their test was positive and they had the symptoms of malaria, for whatever reason that's not yet well understood, the healthcare workers decided to not give them an anti-malarial. Hmm. And in cases where they wanted to give them drugs, they gave them, what, antibiotics, which wouldn't do very much? In a lot of cases, especially when the test was negative, they did give antibiotics. That kind of makes sense. If you're Mm -hmm. in a remote area and you don't have a lot of other options, you've got a sick child or a sick patient in front of you, that person may have come from even up to 20 kilometers away with expensive transport or even walking. You want to do something. And... If you, if you don't feel like you should give an anti-malarial, the test is negative. Your alternative, mm-hmm. in some cases, is an antibiotic. Mm-hmm. So what do we need to fill the gaps in the test here? Mm. Certainly, I mean, the malaria tests diagnose malaria, but there's hundreds of other things that can give a person the same symptoms. So we really need to do a better job of finding out what are those other infections and of developing diagnostics that can help health workers know when it's not malaria, what is it? 
Hmm. Quite interesting. Thank you for for uh, filling in us in this in uh, this thank for filling us in on this, Dr. Hopkins. Heidi Hopkins, medical doctor, associate professor of malaria and diagnostics at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Diseases. We're going to take a break, and afterwards we're going to talk about the wildfires in the West. Is this fire season the new normal? Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. While intense hurricanes have certainly captured our attention lately, the wildfire this season, well, the season is, well, it's, it's a wild one. The West could certainly have used some of Hurricane Harvey's intense rainfall. Eight and a half million acres have burned. Thirty-eight large fires are still burning across the West. The Pacific Northwest, California, and Montana have been some of the hardest-hit areas. And it's not just remote regions of forest that have been affected. Blankets of smoke have shrouded cities, and 33,000 acres of the Columbia River Gorge, about an hour outside of Portland, have been scorched. So what's been fueling the fires this year? How much do humans contribute? Does climate change lead to bigger fires, and how will the forests and ecosystems rebound? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about this hour. Jennifer Balch, Assistant Professor of Geography and Director of the Earth Lab at the University of Colorado in Boulder is with us. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Hugh Safford, a regional ecologist for the Forest Service Southwest Region. He's based in Vallejo, California. Welcome to Science Friday. Thanks for having me. And we want to hear from uh, you, our listeners, especially if you're in a state with an active fire there are 48 active fires going on, as I say, big ones. And uh, the number, if you want to call in, is 844-724-8255, 844-SITE-TALK. And as always, you can also tweet us. We're happy to uh, take your tweets at the same time. Uh, Hugh, can you give us an idea about the area in Northern California that's been affected? What is the terrain like? How does that influence how these fires are burning? Yeah, sure. So uh, we've got two major areas of fires. Uh, one that's continuing today uh, is in northwestern California between the Oregon border and uh, what we call the Mendocino National Forest. And uh, there we've had, uh, and mind you, this this is still going on. We're probably looking at another two to four weeks of burning. Um, but we're right now at about the third uh, most acreage we've seen burned in that part of the state in the last uh, 110 years. Wow. And then in, in the Sierra Nevada and in uh, the Modoc Plateau in the Southern Cascades, they've had a quite an active year as well. This is going to probably end up in the top 10. So it's, uh, they're big years in, in both places. Uh, I don't think that uh, the intensity of the fires has been uh, uh, necessarily all that uh, a high, which is uh, good news for us. But mm. yeah, it's been a big year with a lot of smoke impacts, as you noted. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Jennifer, you're in, in Colorado. What what areas have been burnt to the north of you in Montana? Yeah, so Montana has seen over a million acres of area burned so far this year, and they're currently dealing with what's likely one of their biggest fires in the last couple of decades. Um, so they've had um, some significant fires this, this season. Hmm. And uh, how are they big and as as intense as the ones in Northern California? So there's been a, a high pressure zone that's effectively prevented rainfall from happening, keeping areas really dry in Montana. Um, there's three states that have set on records in terms of how hot or dry it's it's ever been on record, and that's California, Oregon, and Montana. Hmm. Uh, can we say anything about climate change playing a role in these wildfires? 
Yeah, we've known for over a decade that there's a strong link between a warmer climate and wildfires. And we we know we can even parse out that contribution and say that um, effectively climate change and, and human-caused climate change has made fuels 50% drier and it's doubled the amount of western forests that have burned since the 1980s. Mm, and we're, we're tracking a very warm year, aren't we? We are. We're currently... Um, in the midst of what's tracking to be the third warmest year on record. And last year, 2016, was the warmest year on record since records started in the 1800s. And, and, and specifically, the Pacific Northwest and Montana, they have tracked some of their warmest days right in the summer, have they not? Exactly. So those three states, California, Oregon, and Montana, have, have all seen record-breaking hot or dry conditions mm -hmm. in the summer months. Hugh, California has that extended drought, but all you had, uh, uh, you had a wet winter, right? You would think that having more water in the system would help prevent the fires. Yeah, well, it, you remember that in California we have, we're, we uh, uh, both uh, enjoy and suffer the consequences of having a Mediterranean climate. And what that means is that come about May or so, uh, someone upstairs turns the switch off, and we might see rain again sometime September, October, uh, not taking into account, you know, maybe periodic thundershowers at higher elevations. So we, uh, uh, Scott Stevens calls this the pyro state, and it's a state in which we have the kind of drought that you only get in the Rockies every 100 or 200 years, and that happens every year here. So it's a place in which the conditions are always ripe for burning, even when you have a really wet winter. So what's happened is uh, with a really, really wet winter, we've grown a lot of vegetation, a lot of fine fuels in particular. And uh, if we'd had a, I don't know, call say, say a, an average summer, whatever that is in California, uh, we might not have had quite as many ignitions and quite as many big fires. But as mm. Jennifer noted, it's been, a, it's been an extraordinarily hot summer uh, and uh, with a relatively little rainfall, but a lot of dry lightning. And uh, the Klamath, uh, and this is actually in, in northwestern California, this is uh, certainly the pattern that we've seen over the last uh, 30 to 35 years is a lot of years with, with, with some burning and then, you know, in, in, in sort of episodes that might happen two to, to 12 years apart, we'll get these outbreaks of lightning fires that there's so many of them that they just simply can't be controlled. And in this case, uh, that's what happened. And uh, you're just looking at basically an inability to control them. And, and so uh, we've been managing a lot of these for ecological benefit, but also because we don't really have much choice, just trying to protect what assets we can. Uh, Jennifer, the, the Columbia Gorge fire in Oregon was started by teenagers throwing a firecracker. And you published a study that found humans started a surprising amount of wildfires. I'm looking at it. It says 84 percent, 84 started by people. Yeah, it's striking, isn't it? Yeah, so over a couple of decades, we looked at over a million and a half records across the U.S. and found that 84% of our wildfires are actually started by people. Um, and we effectively bring fire with us wherever we go. We, um, we use it for debris burning. It's part of our campfires. Uh, it's a consequence of fireworks. We toss cigarettes out, and they catch uh, hmm. vegetation on fire. There's lots of different ways that we um, start fires. So if, if uh, climate change is extending, let's say, the camping season for a week or two, that means people are bringing the fire with them and extending the fire season. Yeah, it's not only extending the camping season, it's ex definitely extending the fire season. So we also know the, the trends in the western U.S. are that it's, it's two degrees Fahrenheit warmer 
Uh, Snowmelt happens about one to four weeks earlier, and the fire season length is three months longer than it was in the 1970s. And so that, coupled with the fact that people are also bringing along ignitions, and we're dispersing those ignitions throughout the year. So lightning, which is the natural source of fires, tends to occur to occur now. This is sort of the tail end of the lightning strike season. But what people are doing is we're effectively creating a year-round fire season, where we're coupling the ignition availability and the spark that starts those fires with a warmer and extended fire season. Wow. Wow. And, and, and uh, Hugh, what's the ecological impact of having these shifted longer fire seasons? Well, there's a whole lot of them, actually. Uh, we, it's, it's interesting because this year, most, almost all our big fires in California this year were caused by lightning. But particularly in Southern California, we've got a, a rampant human fire regime. I, I suspect probably well north of 90% of fires down there are caused by humans. But uh, yeah, you just simply increase the amount of fire on the landscape. And what I'll say is that uh, the places that humans and lightning ignite fire are pretty different on the landscape. Humans are igniting fires usually uh, on the peripheries of urban areas, uh, along highways, uh, very often in canyons. And, and, and particularly in a place like the Sierra Nevada, where we often have, uh, most of the canyons are aligned with the, with the general wind directions. So when people start fires at the bottom of canyons, they race very quickly up into wildlands, and they can become very difficult to contain. They also happen under the most extreme conditions, because that's when we lose those kinds of fires, right? If someone is, the, the one benefit of, 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 of dealing with a fire set by a human is that most of the time it's being set relatively near to uh, firefighting resources. Interesting. One of the... I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that was just my point. In that, when 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 you know, most lightning strikes are happening at higher elevations, often in areas with lesser fuels. They usually take quite a bit longer to get rolling into something that becomes a real mm. problem. And one of the most remarkable aspects about the wildfires are the large amounts of smoke they're putting out. Parts of the plume have even drifted over to Western Europe. I understand. So what is exactly in the smoke? My next guest and a team of researchers studied the smoke from wildfires in 2013. Their results were published this summer in the Journal of Geophysical Research Atmospheres. Bob Yokelson is a professor of chemistry at the University of Montana in Missoula. Welcome to Science Friday. Hello. Thank you. Why is so much smoke coming out of the fires this year? Well, I think the previous speakers covered this pretty well. Uh, in the Pacific Northwest, it was either the hottest and driest summer or one of the hottest and driest summers on record in, in much of the area. And this is something that may worsen with climate change. And then we also have the years of aggressive fire suppression that allowed abnormal amounts of fuel to build up in large areas. And then there's also just practical practical considerations. We have some good ideas that we've had for a while how to improve the, the fire situation, but they cost money, and that's hard to get. Uh, money. 1-844-724-8255. is our number. If you're experiencing that smoke or a fire in your neighborhood, or you can tweet us at SciFry. Uh, let's talk about that smoke, Bob. You, you looked at the fires from 2013. What are the plumes of smoke made out of? What's in them? So most of what's in smoke you can't actually see. About 90% of the vegetation or fuel is converted to CO2. And next most abundant is CO, carbon monoxide, and that's also invisible. The rest of the smoke is divided up into hundreds of relatively minor gases, 
And then the part that you can see is the few percent that's super small solid particles or liquid droplets. And you'll hear those referred to as aerosol particles or particulate matter. And by super small, we mean that they're less than a thousandth of an inch in diameter. And that's so small that their gravity is minor and they can stay suspended in the atmosphere for weeks. And that's also what reflects sunlight. That's why you can see it and they can clog your airways. So that's sort of a quick summary of what's in smoke. And so that says those tiny pieces of soot, is that what they would be, that tiny particular soot? Right. That's Some of it is call- soot, like you would see come out of a diesel truck, like a black chain of soot. Uh, but some of it is liquid droplets of organic material, too. Hmm. Um, I have some tweets are coming in from Peter. It says, when I hike in the Sierra Nevadas, I see huge numbers of dead trees. This seems to foretell more severe fires and ecosystem changes. I, uh, are, are, is there a lot of wood just lying down, possibly from uh, beetles eating up the trees, and they're going to be there waiting for another fire? So is this a question yeah. for me? Or? Yeah, sure. So I think I think that when the trees first die, they have the needles turn red, and you have a temporary large increase in the fire danger because of that. But once the needles fall off and, and you have large dead snags standing, that doesn't contribute too much to the fire danger. Um, on a very dry summer, it will contribute to the fuel load, but not to the real possibility of fires getting out of control initially. I'm Ira Flato. This is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International, talking about the wildfires in the West. Uh, Hugh, you, you know something about those beetles and trees. Yeah, yeah we, got, we got our comeuppance recently, um, followed up on the, the large mortality events they had in the Rockies and in British Columbia. Um, the difference in California is that these have happened in forests that historically had very frequent fire that used to burn mostly at, at sort of low to moderate severity in terms of its effects. And that's a, kind of a different suite of species uh, mm. that we're dealing with down here as well. So it's been kind of an interesting question. Um, it was a great answer just given to uh, the impact of, of dead trees on fire behavior. And yeah. that's exactly right. And I think what we're we're principally concerned with the first about one to four years after fire because of the increase in the in the fine fuel load in the canopy and we and this and in the last couple of years we've had some quite large and quite severe fires uh, in in that system that's seen so much mortality i think that the estimate by uh forest service force health protection uh, end of last year was that something on the order of 110 million trees had died hmm. around California as a result of the drought. And and, and we are seeing uh, large and very difficult to control fires in those systems now. Uh, Bob, should we be concerned about the human health, about our, our self, when it, when it comes to this smoke? Well, yes. All, you know, all combustion sources, fires, cars, factories, etc., are known to produce particles that are known to expose the public to levels of particles that do cause lung, heart, and other issues. Uh, The gases emitted by combustion, as far as we know, don't usually cause exposures that exceed uh, safe levels, but we have to be careful there because we don't know everything about the combined effects of pollutants yet. So you have different types of fires that cause different types of smoke? uh, Well, uh, most of the smoke... Most of the constituents of smoke are similar f- from between different fires uh, with, you know, there's an average value and some variation, and different fire types have that same average value. But one thing that stood out uh, when we studied wildfires 
was that a much greater percentage of the smoke was composed of the particles. Mm. So, so yeah, uh, that's compared to the controlled fires, you're saying. Right. So in, in 2009 through 2011, various government agencies that conduct prescribed burns uh, funded us to measure what was in the smoke from those prescribed burns. And we didn't have data yet on wildfires at that time. And when we looked at the data that we got in 2013 for wildfires, as I said, a lot of the composition data was the same, but one major difference stood out, and that was that the wildfires produced about two or three times more smoke particles per pound of fuel burned than the prescribed fires. And we already knew that wildfires consume about three times more pounds of fuel per acre. So if you put those numbers together, you're coming up with about 10 times more smoke particles per acre. And so that's important because um, it, you know, it adjusts our thinking about what, where the pollution is coming from, but it also suggests that we could go into some of these forested areas that are going to burn sooner or later. And if we burn them at the time of our choosing to make less smoke and smoke that's directed away from more people, that this could be a beneficial thing. But it has to be recognized that some areas will require mechanical fuels reduction before prescribed burning is safe. Interesting. Thank you, Dr. Yokelson, for taking time to be with us today. Bob Yokelson, professor of chemistry, University of Montana in Missoula. We're going to take a break, and after the break, we're going to come back and talk more about wildfires in the West. We welcome your calls, 844-724-8255. You can also tweet us at SciFry. Lots of folks are tweeting. We'll, we'll see if we can get uh, to those tweets when we come back. Stay with us. We'll be right back after the break. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. We're talking this hour about the wildfires that have burnt over 8 million acres this year and what it means for future fires. My guests are Jennifer Balch, Associate Professor of Geography, Director of the Earth Lab at the University of Colorado in Boulder, Hugh Stafford, Regional Ecologist for the Forest Service's Southwest Region. He's based in Vallejo, California. And our number, 844-724-8255. Um, let's talk about, you know, for decades, you, the approach to these wildfires has been 100% suppression. If, if there's a fire, you put it out, and we now know we need to rethink this approach. Right? How is how does the management of how we put out fires changed? It's really changed quite a bit, actually, and uh, that's I think one of the real uh, positive outcomes of a lot of the science and a lot of the thinking that's gone on in, in, in management circles. Yeah, until the the early 70s, uh, we operated under this famous 10 a.m. rule, where uh, a, you know a district ranger or a forest supervisor was expected to get a fire out by 10 a.m. the next morning, and we're now in a situation with warming climates that all the fuel that's sitting on the ground in a lot of these forest types is, is really becoming problematic in terms of not just the fact that it's causing fires, but the kind of effects that we're having. And so in, in managing fires, there's a, 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 I don't know the right way to put it, but a much more obviously progressive attitude in which fires now don't have to be declared simply as good or bad from the very beginning and then treated as such, but rather different portions of a fire can be treated as uh, good things or bad things. And what we know is that given that the lack of, you know, low severity sort of beneficial effect fire in a lot of Western forests is a major issue, we want to, we want to foment that wherever we can. 
And most wildfires will burn a large proportion of their area in that kind of way. And, and we're in a situation now where uh, that kind of burning can actually be encouraged. Mm-hmm. It's, it's usually called sort of a confine and contain process where they might build a box in a landscape around the fire and say, if we can keep it in here and if we like the effects, we'll just monitor right. this thing. But when it becomes a problem elsewhere, they can they can jump on it. Let's go to the phones. Let's go to Wesley in uh, Kansas City. Hi, welcome to Science Friday. Hey, uh, thanks for taking my call. I'm yeah. actually from the Bay Area, and uh, I was just wondering if we could uh, take a proactive uh, approach to this. Um, for example, before the Loma Prieta earthquake, my parents spent about $4,000 uh, outfitting the, the, the house, placing the foundation, and after the quake, we had no damage. I was just wondering, is it possible that the homeowners could do a similar measure by maybe cutting the, ho- the trees around their homes in, in the uh, fire danger area to prevent fires? Not good question. Let me get a, uh, an answer from uh, Jennifer. Yeah, there's definitely ways we can build better. Um, the way that we construct houses and landscapes, the materials that we use for them, um, there's lots of things that we can do to improve how um, fire-safe communities are and can be. It seems like, you know, we have a, we, 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 I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we were talking about the hurricanes and the flooding that was going on in the east, and then people were living in areas and on floodplains in some of these cases, and people now are choosing to live where fires happen. Right. It would be wonderful if we had firescape maps the way that we consider floodplain maps um, in terms of incentivizing where people live. Because we've effectively tried the experiment of re- removing fire from the landscape, and it didn't work because we, we do live in flammable places, especially in Western ecosystems that are dependent on fire. Um, 9% of what's called the wildland-urban interface, or where houses intermix with wild Mm -hmm. areas, is developed, and it's where people are living. And that's projected to double by 2030. So we really do have to think about building better into these landscapes and living more sustainably with fire. A lot of tweets about the smoke. Hillary uh, says, Portland smoke was bad many days this summer. Pools closed on the hottest days due, due to poor air quality. Creepy red skies. And then uh, Sean says, uh, my work takes me throughout the Pacific Northwest. Smoke stretched from Eugene to lower mainland British Columbia for much of the latter summer. I even remember being out in Casper, Wyoming, wondering during the eclipse, wondering if we're going to see the eclipse because there was so much smoke going on out there. So people, people, uh, uh, you you can't avoid the smoke, noticing the smoke, right? You can start to cough and it's bad for your health. Um, We also have a tweet that's asking why... Why burn the why burn uh, the the brush? Why not just cut down the trees? Yeah, sure. Well, this is Hugh. I'll I'll, yeah. I'll I'll answer that. And and the answer is is that that can be part of the solution in some of the ecosystems that we're talking about. And uh, the, you know, really, I think we're at a point. And I think Bob put it really well. And Jennifer, I think referred to this as well. Is that uh, we're kind of in a situation now where, where after 100 years of allowing fuels to accumulate in a lot of these different forest types, and mind you, in, in some forest types, higher elevations, this really isn't an issue, but in lower elevations it is, we're kind of past the threshold now where it's very difficult under the way uh, burning conditions are, are happening now in the summer to just simply let most fires go because we're not going to like the outcome, and the ecosystems aren't going to like the outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not going to like the smoke outcome, and you're not going to you're not going to like the water outcomes either. And uh, so uh, there are a lot of landscapes where 
human preparations of the landscapes uh, to be able to accept safe, uh, safely that kind of fire is probably pretty important. And, and But there's a lot of things standing between us and that. Uh, one of the biggest issues is that the real big issue uh, from the fuel standpoint are the small trees, maybe some medium trees, and periodically a large tree and a lot of brush. And in this country right now, there is not an economy to deal with that stuff. You know, we live in the U.S. We don't live in a command economy. And uh, if a profit can't be made off something, uh, it's likely not going to happen, and, uh, absent, uh, you know, a huge uh, a subsidy from somewhere. So this is one of the big issues with really low fuel prices right now. For example, biomass burning for energy just right now is, is just at a, at a dead end. So that's a big question is, you know, how do you come up with the extraordinary amounts of funding uh, that is going to be necessary. And then finally, forgive my long-winded answer, but finally there's also a big issue with what to do with the material anyway. We've lost most of our sawmills in the western U.S. in the last 20 to 30 years as the, as the timber industry has, has died out in, 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 in many counties. And, and hence, uh, it's, it's just not possible to find places to even, to even uh, mm. treat the material. Yeah. Uh, uh, Susan tweets, uh, please discuss the fire suppressants and the danger of harming waterways. And I'm reminded of what happens in oil. You know, when you put the dispersants in the water, here she's talking about fire suppressants going into the water. Can I, Jennifer, can you comment on that? Yeah, I know that's a concern. It's definitely not my area of expertise, um, but it's a, a question of trade-offs. You know, how we fight and suppress fires versus how we preserve mm-hmm. um, water resources. And and the the water fire connection is actually even more extreme than that in this in the sense that we're dependent on fire in some systems to pr- preserve intact and healthy forests that actually maintain our water systems. So there's that water fire connection as well that's really important. Let's see if I can get one more question in from uh, Steamboat Springs. Brian, welcome to Science Friday. Hi, Ara. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. So we do a lot of backpacking and hiking and stuff in Colorado, and I've noticed over the last uh, 30 years I've lived here less and less maintenance of the forest. And like all your guests have commented on, the sheer number of uh, amount of wood that's available when we go camping, we hardly even bring firewood with us anymore because there's so much dead wood and dead timber on the ground throughout the northwest part of Colorado. And most of the time, the very little we see the Forest Service out is only to fight fires. We see very little mitigation or even notice forest rangers uh, on the trails when we hike and camp anymore. Part of the issue is that we we can't really address the amount of fuel that's available and the fire problem with thinning and removing fuels alone. I mean, that's, it's a huge, that would be a hugely and very, very expensive process. And so fundamentally, we have to be really strategic about where we do treatments of fuels and how we do them. And fundamentally, I think it's most important where people are living and working and protecting those areas um, in terms of reducing and mitigating the potential risk for larger intense and severe wildfires mm-hmm. and then letting fire do the good work that it does when and when and where we can do it because ultimately we do live in flammable places and part of our strategy mm-hmm. has to be working with fire uh, Hugh, what, how would you answer that question is it a question well, of funding that there's not enough funding to do what you think should be done forest service well, yeah, I mean, obviously funding is something that I have absolutely no control over, and that's something that, that, that Congress is sort of at the root of, and they they have their own priorities, and, and there are a lot of priorities in the country to fund, and so those are sort of, you know, big questions get answered by people in other places. But what you can say and what is on the public record is that uh, the proportion of the Forest Service budget that goes to 
fighting fires, sort of in the post facto sense after they happen, is now over 50%, whereas a couple of decades ago it was down in the sort of the 10%-ish area. And what that means in a, in a, in a, you know, in a challenging budget world is that much more of that pie is being used to deal with emergencies and short-term issues rather than being able to deal with the long-term issues. And this is well understood within all of the land management agencies that we have to think about how we you know, allocate funding to be able to deal with these issues. But a lot of it is just the scale of the problem. And again, both Jennifer and Bob referred to this, that mm. there's yeah. just so much fuel yeah. out there that it's very difficult to deal with it. And we're also a society that works from emergency to emergency. So we'll, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> uh, Hugh Stafford is regional ecologist for the Forest Services Southwest Region. Uh, he's based in Vallejo, California. Jennifer Balch, associate professor, assistant professor. I just elevated you, Jennifer. Uh, Thank you. Of geography, <laughs> director of the Earth Lab at the University of uh, Colorado in Boulder. Thank you both for taking time to be with us today. Every year, tourists flock to the caves of New Zealand to gawk at an amazing sight. Thousands of little lights shining in the dark like stars. But they're not stars or even fireflies. They're glowworms. And while many people find these creatures enchanting, the truth is... Technically, a glowworm is actually a glowing maggot. but that doesn't sound as romantic. No, it doesn't. That's Dr. Miriam Sharp, a researcher who's studying the New Zealand glowworms, investigating the mystery of how exactly they light up. It turns out we really, we still really don't know. And Dr. Sharp and her research partner, Kurt Krauss, are on the subject, they are the subjects of our latest macroscope video up on our website at sciencefriday.com slash glowworms. And here to tell us more about their research and the weird, wonderful worlds of these glowworms is my next guest, Chelsea Fisk, video producer with the Moon Jelly Productions. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi, thank you for having me. Does the fact that a glowworm is actually a maggot take all that magic away for you? Not at all. It's actually kind of funny to learn that, but when you're there in the middle of a glowworm cave and you feel like you're surrounded by, you know, 360 degrees of starlight. It's it's still magical, regardless of the fact that they're actually a fungus gnat. <laughs> because a lot of people remember, I remember uh, as a kid, hearing about glowworms were, were fireflies that light up outside in the yard. These are not them, right? They are not. Um, so fireflies are in the northern hemisphere, and it's funny because fireflies are actually beetles, and these glowworms, um, they're the larval stage of a fungus gnat, which is more like a fly, so it can be kind of confusing. Um, but, yeah, they are yeah. specific. This species was specific to New Zealand. There's also a couple other species in Australia, and that's it. Tell us about the researchers, the couple of research who, researchers who are investigating the chemistry. What does their research process look like? Sure. So, yeah, they were great. Um, Dr. Marion Sharp and Kurt Krauss, at, they're at the University of Otago, which is in Dunedin, so it's southern New Zealand. Um, and, you know, they got into it because they really just wanted to find out what makes these creatures glow. Um, and they're... There are about 40 different, 40 or more different bioluminescent uh, systems throughout the world, and each of them use a different mechanism mm. for glowing. Hang, hang on, um, let me just remind everybody that this is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International. Sure. So, um, so yeah, so 
in their research, they go out, um, in this case, they go to a ravine near them called Nichols Creek. Um, they go out with their flashlights, or in New Zealand, they call them torches, which is more fun. Um, and they take a little shish kebab stick and approach uh, these little glowworms on the walls of the ravine, and they drop them into their uh, tubes to bring back to the lab. And they actually, you know, glowworms are carnivorous, so um, and in fact, they can be cannibals at times, so they can't put too many of them in the same tube. Uh, they bring those back to the lab, uh, freeze them, cut off the light organ, which is essentially uh, right at the tail end of the glowworm, um, and then mash those up in in a, into a little into a solution. And then from there, what they're really trying to get at is, um, like I said, figuring out what makes them glow. So they're separating out the proteins um, in these light organs to identify the protein or enzyme, which um, they call a luciferase, and um, and then also a chemical, a small molecule substrate or a luciferin. So those two things are the components that they're looking for um, that make these these bioluminescent creatures glow. So they just want to know how how they work. They're yeah, they really do. They're not interested in any real application. <laughs> they just want to figure it out. Right. It's very refreshing, actually. You know, they're definitely just in the pursuit of knowledge. And while there are a lot of potential, um, you know, outcomes for this research in biomedical research and various other areas, right now, I mean, they're really focused on just understanding and learning. Hmm. And the glow, glowworms live in caves. How tough was it filming in the dark? Like that. Uh, luckily, I love caves. <laughs> Otherwise, it, 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 it could have presented some challenges. So um, because, like you mentioned, there are such tourist attractions, uh, typically, so I was with my husband, Brandon, and so we would choose to go at night um, and oftentimes to the lesser known caves because there are some pretty major commercial caves down there. And so we'd go out at night. Um, oftentimes these caves are in the strangest places in the middle of a sheep paddock or something. Um, and so we would take our headlamps and uh, usually, you know, these caves for the glowworms need to be damp. So usually there's creeks running through these caves. And um, so we would trek in with our gear and wow. um, it's kind of eerie yeah. because there are oftentimes eels in the creeks in the caves, um, which can bite. Never mind. Luckily, <laughs> I'm not going with it. <laughs> but um, you didn't get bit too often. No, not at all. all. Right. And I, it was completely worth it. It's huh, magical. Right. I want to thank you. And it's up there uh, on our website at sciencefriday.com/glowworms. Chelsea Fisk, video producer with Moon Jelly Productions. Thank you very much. Charles Berkowitz is our director, senior producer Christopher Intaliata. Our producers are Alexa Lim, Christy Taylor, Katie Heiler. Our radio intern is Shashmita Padak. Rich Kim, our technical director. Sarah Fishman, Jack Horowitz, our engineers at the studios of our production partners, the City University of New York. I'm Ira Flato in New York.